Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simona. Welcome back for another episode. November 26th of 2003 was a good day for rising star James Tapp Jr., whose stage name was Soldier Slim. According to his mother, Linda Tapp Porter, he was in a good mood as he ran errands and went about his day. With him, he was carrying a copy of his music video that would launch his album, and y'all make no mistake, he was on the eve of success. Around 5.45 p.m., Slim pulled up to his mother's residence at 4618 Lafayette Street in his silver Cadillac with plans of watching his music video with his friends. On either side of the street waited two killers, Jarrell Smith and Stephen Kennedy. When James Tapp Jr. least expected it, three bullets struck his face and one hit his chest, which killed him instantly. It was unknown at that moment, but the death of James Tapp Jr. started a bloody domino effect, resulting in the brutal murder of the Queen of Bounds, Renetta Yamikolo Bridgewater. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. Are y'all ready to take this bus to the Crescent City again? Because I know I am. I apologize in advance if y'all hear some background noise. They are doing some work across the street. Now, this episode is about the senseless murder of Magnolia Shorty. In 2010, she was murdered in a double homicide with a man named Jerome Hampton while at her apartment complex in New Orleans. I am quite surprised that there is not a lot of podcast work on her. Of course, you can reference hip hop homicides or Google her story, but there are not many places where you can get the full shebang without having to pay money for services or new subscriptions or hop around and piece everything together yourself. So there's a lot of information on Magnolia Shorty, the artist, but what about her as a woman? I gotta be honest with y'all, that is kind of my gripe with this episode. Now, there are different stories that connect to this case. Being the notorious gang, the 39ers, and their known rivals, the Dooney Boys. I will be sticking to what is known to be closest to the truth in regards to why and how she died. And a lot of information did come from court transcripts, which were read by beloved YouTuber and transcript reader Septina. It has recently come to my knowledge that she has passed away. And it's clear that a lot of y'all loved her work, so I'm so sorry to hear of this loss. And I'm also sad to hear that prior to her death, another YouTuber with a bigger platform was taking her work. So if you want to listen to Septina from her channel, check out the show notes for the link. Now, trigger warning for gun and gang violence for those of you who have lost loved ones to either or both. Now, let's go ahead and get into it. For those of you who are unaware, there are 17 different wards in New Orleans. The first 11 wards were carved out in 1852, and then the rest were formed during the expansion of the city in the 1870s. Originally, these wards were created for voting purposes, but have since been replaced by city council districts. Despite the change in how the wards are used, they hold a lot of meaning for neighborhood identity in the city, and the rise of bounce music in the 80s cemented the use of wards as an identifier. For reference on this information, I want to plug NeutralGrounds.com and journalist Michael Craig for the wonderful work on Magnolia Project's hood history. I was able to learn a lot and pull information from this source, so make sure you you check them out in my show notes as well. Now, when it comes to the wards, different wards have different personalities and ways of doing things. Most important to mention is that 
These wards are what divided the notorious gangs of pre and post Katrina New Orleans. These gangs played a role in the death of Magnolia Shorty and are important to talk about y'all. The G-Strip gang represented and operated out of the 9th Ward, the G referencing Gallier Street. The 3NG gang represented 3rd and Galvez Street, but eventually merged with G-Strip to create the 39ers. Dooney Boys, who are a rival of the 39ers, represented 3rd Ward Magnolia projects, but respectfully, they could operate out of other areas. This is a very violent case, y'all. We often associate New Orleans with Mardi Gras, if you're like me, you might think of a little dark tourism, you know, a little spooky spook, and we think of the French Quarter and those pricey-ass fish bowls. But behind the fun of it all, there is death, drugs, and gangs. New Orleans at one time was said to be so violent of a city, when boys turned the age of 12, their parents put life insurance policies on them because, you know, from there, shit could go either way. Now, we'll get more into the violence later on, but on a lighter note, Let's talk about the Magnolia Projects. Located in the third ward of New Orleans was the CJP Public Housing Development, which is more commonly known as the Magnolia Projects or Wild Magnolia. Construction began in 1939 and was led by Chief Architect Moise H. Goldstein. The Magnolia Projects were to be the first all-Black housing project to be federally funded by the United States. Frank established his barbershop on LaSalle Street in the late 30s and began to expand his business in the area with his brother by adding a bar and a hotel called the Dewdrop Inn, which opened April of 1939. The same year construction began on the Magnolia projects. In 1945, the Dewdrop Inn added live music, and after that, y'all, it was a goddamn rap. Y'all know white people didn't want black folk in their spaces, so we were forced to create our own, and that's exactly what the Dewdrop Inn did. This historical place attracted some of the best black performers from all over the world and was a hub of the Chitlin Circuit. These are a series of performance venues throughout the South, East, and Upper Midwest that were safe harbors and booking agencies for touring and local African-American artists. These venues, like the Dewdrop Inn, helped launch and sustain the careers of African-American artists during segregation and maintained the culture of New Orleans brass band and black masking Indian music for generations. Side note... Since it is Black History Month, we should all know that the Negro Motorist Green Book was a map of sorts to the Chitlin Circuit. We needed maps that showed us safe routes to travel and places where we could have good services and entertainment. Both are historically connected. Now, some of the artists who played at the Dewdrop Inn were Ray Charles, Otis Redding, Little Richard, Ellen Toussaint, and Irma Thomas. Almost every article about the hotel links to the Magnolia Projects because of the massive musical influence it had on the residents. Also good to mention is that the Housing Authority of New Orleans also opened the B.W. Cooper Projects, a.k.a. the Calliope. Y'all gonna have to forgive me on that. So, and this is home of No Limit Records in the Lafitte and the St. Bernard Housing Projects for Black Tenants. In the beginning, these complexes were well-constructed but would differ from developments like the Desire and the Fisher. These projects were horribly constructed with the intention to cut off Black residents from job opportunities. Investments diminished after desegregation and all of these projects, including the CJP housing projects, fell to ruin due to neglect 
especially after drugs mysteriously swept through all of these projects in the 80s and 90s. And then also y'all go show comedian Boogie B some love on TikTok. If you want information on the projects of New Orleans or just want some hood history, he is your guy. It is so important to tell y'all that, you know, what I used for resources because the people of New Orleans really go out of their way to keep the truth of their cultures alive. Now, unfortunately, Boogie B was shot by a stray bullet a few years back, so go get you some good hood history lessons and let that man stretch y'all out a little bit. Now, regardless of the decline of the projects, Bounce and Hip Hop were on the rise. The projects would become a launching pad for Cash Money Records and be the home of Magnolia Slim, aka Soldier Slim, Magnolia Shorty, Juvenile, and Jay Electronica, to name a few. That brings me to the star of our show, Magnolia Shorty. Magnolia Shorty was born Renetta Yamika Lowe to Brenda Lowe and Raymond Fletcher September 30th of 1982 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Raymond is said to have been a gifted singer, writer, composer, and arranger, which is where Renetta got her talent from. And she's one of six children and was raised in the Magnolia Projects. Now, according to her mother, Brenda, Renetta was amazing from the time that she was born. And from a young age, she would carry around a composition book that had her raps in it. Initially, her sister, Raynell, took notice first of her talents. But soon after, the rest of the family realized that she was incredibly gifted. Raynell said that she knew Renetta was a star at a young age and that she was destined for stardom just by her personality and confidence. While Renetta was young, her mother and father Raymond split, and it was during this time that she started honing in on her musical skills. By the age of 14, she was holding concerts on their porch and in the courtyard of the Magnolia Project. Brindelo realized how good Renetta was and told her, if you're serious about doing this, you're going to do it for real. And she went and purchased a recorder for Renetta and supported her endeavors going forward. There would be times where Brenda would be at work, she would get off go and come home, and there would be about a thousand people hanging around listening to Renetta rap. Other times, Brenda would go to sleep and the next day, like kids and adults would run up to Brenda and tell her how her daughter brought the house down at her show. Come to find out, she was sneaking out the house to host shows at clubs, and each time it was a banger. Like, people said the moment Renetta walked into a club, niggas would start to scramble to grab the mic to try to get in their time rapping because they knew that once she got on it, it was a done deal. And mind y'all, this is still early in her career. Now, in the 90s, Renetta was discovered by Birdman and received the name Magnolia Shorty from James Tapp Jr., who went by the name Soja Slim and Magnolia Slim. See, the two came from the same projects and were close from a very young age. According to Renetta's cousin, Katie Black, they would all spend time rapping together. And Renetta, she officially went on to sign with Cash Money Records, and I think this was in 1995. And her first major song was distributed and backed by Cash Money Records, and that was Monkey on the Stick, which is known to be a bounce classic. And... According to her mother, Renetta had been holding on to that rap since the age of 12. Now, these lyrics did horrify Brenda, but Renetta tried her best to calm her fears and explain to her that the lyrics were just a part of the game. So, five days after its release, the entire city knew it word for word, bar for bar, and this started Renetta's rise to fame. And sometimes they said that she was so booked and busy that she would perform at multiple venues in one day and just... Like I said earlier, my major issue with her story is how they primarily focus on, you know, her career and how it started, 
but I want to know about her closest friend groups. Where did she go to school? What did she have as like a backup plan? You know, if music didn't work out, like there's just so many different parts of Renetta Lowe that we don't know, unfortunately. And I'll just throw this in right here, y'all. As far as love interests, it is widely reported that she fell in love with her on and off again boyfriend, Carl Bridgewater. Carl Stevens Bridgewater was born October 21st of 1980 to Alice Bridgewater and Carl Williams. He was one of five children and was born and raised in New Orleans, and I believe he's from the 12th Ward. Y'all please correct me if I'm wrong, forgive me. Now, Carl and Renetta had known each other since they were teenagers, and they eventually went on to tie the knot in the years leading up to Renetta's death. Over the course of Carl's life, he was hit with seven felonies and 15 misdemeanors. Carl went back to prison the year Renetta died for heroin distribution, but by all accounts, he was pretty much obsessed with her and I don't think that that was in a good way y'all I will explain that later according to quite literally everybody if you made it out of the Magnolia projects alive you were pretty much a success story period however that doesn't necessarily mean trouble won't follow you I told y'all how Renetta knew James Tapp Jr aka Soldier Slim well, he was gunned down Thanksgiving Eve of 2003. Months after the murder of James Tapp Jr., police arrested a man named Jarrell Smith in connection to his murder. And Jarrell Smith was 22 years old at the time and ballistics on the weapon in his possession matched the bullets taken from James's body and the casings left on the ground. The gun used in the murder was a .40 caliber Glock semi-automatic that was stolen from the home of a New Orleans police officer. I wonder what that T is. Now, allegedly, Jarrell Smith received $10,000 to take the life of Soldier Slim, but was getting cold feet, so he sought the help from a man named Stephen Kennedy. It is known that Stephen Kennedy is the one who pulled the trigger. Now, y'all go ahead and walk with me a little bit. Walk with Kay. Keep up. Now, the charges against Jarrell Smith would eventually be dropped because the police couldn't find any witnesses to the crime. But this was an ongoing theme with Jarrell Smith, and the murder of James Tapp Jr. was not his first kill. Every time the police thought they had him, witnesses would be too afraid to come forward, and this is due to corruption and the lack of protection from the New Orleans Police Department. That is so not fucking surprising. So now... Keep walking with me because the juice lies with Stephen Kennedy. So, of course, we know that the levies failed in 2005. And around this time, Renetta was probably around the age of 23. And not much is talked about when it comes to how she fared during the hurricane. But what we do know is that majority of the evacuees fled west during Hurricane Katrina to Houston. I mean, artists, citizens, gangs, baby, everybody headed out west. And this spread musical influence and gang activity. Let's talk about it. So it is said that the murder rate in Houston increased about 32% after evacuees began flooding into Houston for safety and housing. It got so bad, y'all. Houston PD organized a 10-man gang murder squad on January 15th of 2006 to find gang members that the feds were looking for. One of those men was Jerome Hampton, known by the streets as Man. Jerome Hampton was born to Laura Davis and Jerome Tapp March 12th, 1982 in New Orleans, Louisiana. He had about five or six siblings and it said he is possibly the cousin of Soja Slim. What is clear about Jerome's life is that it was filled with constant chaos, y'all. There isn't much out there in regards to his childhood or schooling. 
What is most known is that he was an associate of Ivory B. Stupid Harris, who reps the Dooney Boys. December 28th of 2005, Jerome Hampton murdered Stephen Kennedy as he was walking out of the Studio Plus Hotel located at 1303 La Concha Road in Houston, Texas. This murder was witnessed by a man named Rico Jackson, who will give a statement to the police saying he observed Jerome Hampton walk up to Stephen Kennedy, pull out a firearm, and shoot him in the head. According to Rico Jackson, that is not something you do to another man, ever. It is not good to talk to the police about someone else, even if they are from another gang. Rico Jackson, y'all, is a known associate for 3NG. Remember earlier I told y'all about the 39ers and how their two gangs, G-Strip and 3NG, mer merged in 2010 to have tighter control of the drug trade in New Orleans. Between 2008 and 2013, authorities would connect at least 10 killings to 3NG. The G-Strip gang were linked to various homicides around the Desire and Florida housing projects. As far as the 39ers as a collective force, y'all, over 45 murders have been connected to them. After the murder of Stephen Kennedy in 2005, Jerome Hampton would find himself in an ongoing feud with the 39ers. This feud resulted in Jerome threatening to kill a man named Merle Offrey and any member of 3NG. To protect the gang from Jerome, 3NG sought the help of a man named Gregory Stewart, aka Rabbit. Gregory was a dealer and assassin who operated on G-Strip. He grew up on Gallier Street as a child and attended Lorraine Hansberry Elementary School. It is said he grew up around constant violence. The first time he saw a dead body, it was in his grandmother's living room where his mother's boyfriend was murdered. Gregory was between the ages of three and four. And then the second time he saw a dead body was in fifth grade when his friend was shot by mistake. At the age of 11, he was selling two ounces of cocaine per week. By the age of 15, Gregory was taught to carry a handgun. He was, he was already known by the law in his preteen years, resulting in him spending 14 months in the state juvenile system. When he gets out to entice him back into selling drugs, Merle Offrey gave him $10,000 and a kilo of heroin. This and his upbringing was, of course, not good for him, and it isn't talked about often how this boy used to tap dance in the French Quarter on Bourbon Street for money. Gregory said, and I quote, I used to put bottle caps on my feet and make a sign to make money. And y'all, he did this to put money in his pocket for shoes and food. So to go from tap dancing on the Bourbon for a few bucks to getting $10,000 to sell drugs... It wasn't a tough decision to go back to the game. Gregory did attend some high school courses, but eventually dropped out because gang violence was too dangerous and his partner had already succumbed to it. In 2006, Gregory began selling heroin for Daryl Franklin, and he was useful because he was so small. The police, y'all, never suspected a child to be, you know, doing the drug selling. So a man from the Desire Projects named Louis Daniel would teach Gregory how to kill, specifically telling him to shoot at the body, not the head. He was taught that they aren't here to be marksmen, shoot the body, and when they fall, you stand over them and aim for the head, end quote. Now, before he was 20 years old, Gregory Stewart had a hand in over a dozen homicides, and Jerome Hampton was becoming a problem that he was ordered to take care of. Post-Hurricane Katrina, it was really up to artists to spread their musical influence around, and that is exactly what Renetta did in the years leading up to 2010. Y'all, life was great. She had done work with Lil Wayne, BG, and Juvenile, and in 2010, 
she released Smoking Gun, and if you have ever listened to In My Feelings by Drake, you've heard Renetta's influence as he sampled her music. In 2010, with the help of her friend Maya X, they began going back and forth between Texas and New Orleans, you know, spreading around their love for Bounce. It is because of them and Big Frida and other artists that Bounce music spread across the South. Renetta's biggest show that year was at SXSW in Austin, and I think that was around March. Now that same year, y'all, 2010, and against the advice of her friends and family, Renetta began hanging around Jerome Hampton, who had just been released from prison. Allegedly, he won a parts in the rap game and was a rising star in the community, so she had agreed to take him under her wing. And she was known to plug people, put them on game, so her taking Jerome Hampton under her wing was nothing new. But the streets knew Jerome was connected to murders in New Orleans and Houston. The second to last time Jerome was spotted by the 39ers, it was at Sportsview Bar. This is how I know that these gang members didn't kill without thought, y'all. No one was to be harmed while at this club, and Rico Jackson would testify to that later on. What Rico also said was that they knew Jerome was the type to smile and act like everything was all right. He would have key, key, key with you in public, but don't let that motherfucker catch you up outside your zone because on-site was on-site. Now, the 39ers made a conscious decision to wait until Jerome was outside the club and tried to look for the vehicle he was known to ride in and almost killed the wrong people because they were given incorrect information. I'm telling y'all this to say that the death of Renetta could have been avoided. These were not just bloodthirsty killers who couldn't think before pulling the trigger. Now, on December 20th, Renetta was preparing to travel to Miami, Florida for a bounce festival, but she needed to stop at her apartment to pick up some last minute items. And I'm gonna throw some names at y'all real quick, just so y'all know exactly who was involved. So McCoy Walker, also known as Rat, told Gregory Stewart that Jerome Hampton was riding with his girl in the projects. And when they say his girl, they are referring to Renetta. So Gregory Tyrone Knockham, also known as T-Bone, Rico Jackson, known as Freaky, Terry Asoni, known as T-Red, and McCoy Walker picked up a series of weapons being a Glock 27.40 caliber semi-automatic handgun nicknamed Barack, a short AK-47 semi-automatic assault weapon, a Glock 19 9mm semi-automatic handgun nicknamed Michelle, and an SKS 7.62 semi-automatic assault weapon, and they drove to the Calio projects looking for Jerome. Now, they were unable to locate Jerome in the projects, but Terius Oni's girlfriend was living at the Georgetown of New Orleans apartments and knew Renetta lived there and that Jerome Hampton frequented her place. So they decided to make that their next stop. Tyrone T-Bone drove straight to the 6300 block of Bridgehampton Drive and passed through the gate behind another vehicle. It was known that Renetta drove a white Chevy Malibu, so the gang made out the car to confirm that they were home and waited for Jerome to exit the apartments. After about a minute or two, they decided that they would leave for some cigars, so they exited the apartments and drove up the street to the gas station. Gregory knew better than to get out of the vehicle in case there were cameras because they knew that they were about to commit a murder. So they asked the person who was outside the gas station to purchase the cigars for them. After obtaining the cigars, they headed back to the Georgetown of New Orleans apartments, and this time the gate was locked. But remember, y'all, Terry Asoni's girlfriend lived there, 
Zotarius knew the code. They entered the apartment complex and parked by the speed bumps so that when Jerome Hampton left, he would have no choice but to slow down over the speed bumps and that is when they would attack. They waited about 5 to 10 minutes and at approximately 12.20 p.m., Renetta and Jerome were headed towards the gate to exit the apartment when the white crown Victoria, driven by Tyrone Knockham, sped forward and cut them off. McCoy Walker shot first and hit Renetta, which caused her to speed forward and crash into the gate. Rico Jackson, the man who knew Renetta from school, who knew she had nothing to do with their beef with Jerome Hampton, shot 13 to 15 times at the vehicle. To ensure that both passengers were hit, Gregory climbed onto Renetta's car and shot down through the windshield, emptying his clip. All four continuously shot at Renetta and Jerome until their clips were pretty much empty. A man who wished to remain anonymous called the crime in and told the authorities the shooters were in a white car that looked like a police car without a license plate. He told dispatch the vehicle was probably on I-10 and that the police would pass them on their way to the crime scene. When asked for his name, he declined and said, no, I'm not giving you my name. I'm just trying to help you out. Crime scene photos would show the white Chevy Malibu after it crashed into the gate, riddled completely with bullets and missing its windows that had been knocked out of the frames. Over the duration of two to three minutes, Renetta was shot over 26 times and more than 80 bullet casings were recovered from the scene. It is unknown how long she was alive for this, but we do know that she was alive when she sped forward and tried to crash through the gate. After committing the murder, the gang hopped back into the Crown Vic and headed towards the Ninth Ward, where they stashed their weapons in the vehicle behind an apartment complex on the G Strip. In a bit, I will cover how we know what Renetta's final moments were like, but I just want to say that the 39ers are full of fucking shit. To say that they didn't know Renetta was in that car, it was known that she had a Chevy Malibu, it was known that she lived in the Georgetown of New Orleans, and the streets knew her and Jerome were an item and that he frequented her apartment. When these niggas get to spilling their guts later on, they all want to say that they didn't know, they weren't aware until later on. That shows me how scared they were to admit involvement or be tied to her murder. Renetta was so loved and adored, everyone was shocked that someone could do her that way. When the news broke that Renetta was in that vehicle, not only did multiple social media platforms temporarily break down, but everyone was in denial. Such a violent death to suffer, and those closest to her knew that she had no involvement in any type of gang activity. Now, when it was revealed that her murder was a double homicide, and Jerome Hampton was also in the shootout, I hate to say it, but everyone was like, oh shit, that tracks. Again, Jerome was a known killer and was feuding with the 39ers. Renetta was laid to rest on December 30th and her services were held at Fifth African Baptist Church and were followed by a second line to Shakespeare Park. Lil Wayne, Juvenile, and a number of other artists were in attendance. The church and outside the church were filled with mourners. And it's also said that Renetta's husband at the time, Carl Bridgewater, was allowed to speak at her funeral. Juvenile said, and I quote, I think about how small she was with a big voice and how brave she was as a woman going to some of the areas she went to and getting on the mic and making her song. I will make sure to upload pictures to the Insta because her funeral was absolutely beautiful. A beautiful casket that was carried by a horse-drawn carriage while the second line played a cover of her hit song, Smoking Gun. Renetta was laid to rest at Mount Olivet Cemetery. 
As far as Jerome Hampton, he was buried a bit later. I do not know what the delay for his burial was caused by, but he was laid to rest January 8, 2011, and his funeral services were held at the Chapel of the Roses of Charbonnet Le Bas Glapion Funeral Home. Now, I will be wrapping this episode up shortly, but earlier I did mention Carl Bridgewater. I really was not going to dig too deep into this man, but the rumors were rumoring, y'all. There was a rumor that Carl had learned that Renetta was with Jerome, and he got jealous and put a hit on her. There was also a separate situation when it was confirmed by Renetta's sister that Carl was pissed off when he learned Renetta changed the payee of her life insurance policy to her family instead of him. The thing about this show, Digital Footprint is a motherfucker. I do not believe that Renetta was cheating on Carl or doing anything nefarious. I truly think they were both about to go in their separate ways. And again, Digital Footprint, Facebook Baby, is forever. It looks as if a couple different women thought that they belonged to Carl Bridgewater. When it comes to Carl's obsession with Renetta, it may have been for clout towards the end. According to family members, Carl was so upset, Renetta went and changed the payee of her policy back to him, and he received the payout after her death. A man who truly loved her wouldn't have spent her death payout on a new car and drugs upon his release from federal prison. Less than a year after Renetta's death, Carl Bridgewater, a free man, was shot to death on November 17, 2001. His murder has not been solved, and at the time, he had an unborn son named Carl Bridgewater Jr. and a fiancé. Renetta and Jerome's case would remain unsolved until details about a RICO and gang conspiracy trial began to make its rounds through New Orleans. See, in the fall of 2010, the FBI began investigating the drug activity of a man named Montreal Delaney and his associates and suppliers. The same month Renetta was murdered, the FBI secured wiretaps on Montreal's telephones, and these telephones were wired through the end of February of 2011, which would result in the capture and turnover of Gregory Stewart. The devil of New Orleans gave the DA everything they wanted to know in hopes of reducing the four consecutive life prison terms that he was initially handed. Court records revealed that he gave names and other specifics involving shootings and fairing heroin from Houston to the Ninth Ward. In August of 2014, a New Orleans grand jury indicted four suspected gang members on murder charges in the slaying of Renetta and Jerome. This indictment came as a result of the federal investigation by the New Orleans FBI Gang Task Force. On February 22nd of 2017, 10 members from the 39ers were indicted on racketeering and murder charges, and all of them received maximum sentences in prison. Those who were offered plea deals could potentially get out early, but the RICO charges and murder indictments shine light on who really killed Renetta Lowe Bridgewater and Jerome Hampton. Now, the reason that I'm not going to go too deep into the 39ers is that maybe the devil of New Orleans got a goddamn ring to it. These murder cases and all of these different testimonies, that could make a whole 45 to an hour episode. So I actually want to do that separate, y'all. Uh, so this is where I am going to end this episode. Now, y'all, as promised, I will go ahead and make a smaller video about the life and death of Magnolia Shorty. I'll try to fit that into three minutes. Um, maybe between now and this weekend, I will have found out some more information. But like I said, a lot of this stuff is hard to find. I had to go to multiple different platforms and go through forums and go through obituaries. Like, 
it's so much more than how somebody died or, you know, their musical endeavors. I would have liked to really have known how these people lived outside of violence, you know, and Magnolia Shorty outside of, you know, her musical talent. So yeah, if I can find anything else, I'll make sure to include that in a TikTok. Um, but I want to go ahead and thank y'all so much for tuning in. Like, Black Culture Grand Podcast is growing and your girl is shook to the goddamn core. I'm so humble and grateful that y'all tune into these episodes. And I want to thank y'all so much for the reviews. And as always, if you tuned in and rocked with me, you can show your support by giving a five star and review on Spotify and Apple. If you want to send me an email, please reach out to Black Girl True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. My TikTok is ksimone 93 My Instagram is Black Girl underscore True Crime Podcast. I want to thank y'all for tuning in, and I will catch y'all next week. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.